any successful lawyer that's running a law firm has to put their ego aside. That's Rob Simon, co-founder of Simon Law Group and Justice HQ. If you cannot do that, you will not succeed. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Rob Simon to discuss the importance of surrounding yourself with the right network, why the harder you work, the luckier you get, and why the most giving people tend to be the most successful. The wealthiest people that I know are the people that are the most giving with their time or helping others. Because I, I do believe in karma. It's some form or fashion, like it, it all comes back. And like my dad taught me this is an early age. He's like, just be nice to everybody. There's no reason to be an asshole. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. So this is long overdue, and I appreciate you coming on. I, I will say that when I messaged you, I said, Rob, do you want to come on the podcast? You're like, yes, as long as you don't mind getting canceled or you're not afraid to get canceled. And you say, hey, just kidding. So you know what? I'll actually kick this off with uh, what we were talking about before we started the podcast, which was a tweet that you put up, and I think it's a video now as well. But essentially, you are now the ED STD lawyer, right? So if you're scared of ED, people should definitely partner with you if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, ED is now we say expert depositions, STD. I figure we said it was like standard trial domination or spine trial domination. I do a lot of spine trials. But yeah, man, I just grew out of something funny. We were doing like a photo shoot. We're opening a new Justice HQ in, in South Bay here in Torrance in a couple of weeks. So we had to get some footage and stuff. And our media, our media team, they did some B-roll stuff. We put that post together in like 20 minutes with brainstorming and just adding on shit. But they're like, look, let's put Bob Dole's voice over this. It looks like an ED fucking ad. So we're like, oh, man, let's just go with this. So, yeah, dude, it was funny. And it's it's one of those ones you don't know why, but it performs very well. There's no fucking rhyme or reason to it. It just does. But, yeah, dude, I'm the new ED lawyer. I'll, I'll take it. I have to ask. This is interesting because there are a lot of trial lawyers listening to this podcast. They probably wouldn't put out messaging like that. They'd probably think that if I did that, who would ever hire me? I would lose the respect of the entire legal profession. But yeah, you do stuff like that all the time. So like, I guess, are you at a point where you just don't care anymore or have you actually found that it works? Well, one, it works. And two, I do stuff that I think is funny. Like most of my business as a lawyer comes from other lawyers referring me their cases. And I find the more that you are authentic and a real person that people want to hang out with, the more people want to work with you. So I'm like, fuck it, dude. I think this is funny. And then it's funny. And then sometimes I think it's funny. People are like, eh, that's a little too far. I'm like, well, I don't care. I thought I laughed about it. So it is what it is. Yeah, dude, if people are easily offended, I don't want to work with them 
to begin with. I'm a pretty jovial guy. I think pretty much anything is funny. And I think if if you take yourself too seriously, I mean, whatever. You are what you are, but I don't want to hang around you. So we could do a whole podcast on being your authentic self, which I think is kind of the, ultimately the takeaway of a lot of this. But I want to ask you about, so there's Simon Law Group, AKA the Justice Team, and then Justice HQ, and you're wearing a Black Panther shirt. And I'm just curious, like, what's the whole superhero theme here? I'm one of five. My twin brother and I are the first of the five, and we run our law firm together. So my twin brother, Brad, who's like the brains of our operation, he's an amazing artist. Like, we grew up reading comic books, but he just was like, we grew up in Pittsburgh, and he would have to go to Carnegie Mellon because they're like, this kid's got special talent. We were like in the city public school. Um, But he loved comic book art. So did I. So when we were kids, he did murals all over our bedroom walls of all Marvel superheroes. So when I was growing up, and he did it all freehand, and it's amazing. Like, my favorite was the Hulk. There's a Hulk wall. There's a Spider-Man wall. There was just a collage of everybody else. I always said, if I ever made it, I'm just going to get a fucking giant Hulk statue in my office. And I did. So if you go to my Hermosa Beach office, there's a, like, 15-foot Hulk statue to bring from Australia from one of the Avenger movies. But, yeah, like, that was always just, like, a definition. Like, do whatever you want. Like, some of my tattoos have, like, I have Captain America's shield on Lady Justice on, on my arm and some other stuff. So that was where that started. And we originally the Simon Law Group. It was harder for people to type Robert at the Simon Law Group or remember it. So we said, fuck, we'll rebrand to Justice Team. That domain was open. So if you go to Justice Team or Justice.team, it all ports to the same place. But very easy for branding. We got it trademarked. That's my brother, man. He's the creative one that thinks of that shit. So it works. You know, obviously today you've got over 200 million in trial verdicts. And I think people who are familiar with you already know that. But for those who aren't, based on how we started this podcast, they may think, man, who is this guy? Is he serious? And the reality of it is your results are incredible. But I want to dial it back first, you know, to really kind of the, the superhero origin story, if you will, of like why become a lawyer? Oh, wow. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. My When I was 11, my uncle, well, he's actually my great uncle, but my, I have a big Irish Catholic family. So my grandmother's one of the oldest. He's one of the youngest, but he's my dad's age. So he's like my uncle, but really my great uncle. Hit by a drunk driver, is paralyzed. And we all come from very blue-collar, working-class Pittsburgh. I saw his lawyer have to fight for him. They said he was unbelted. It was his fault, all this shit. They settled in the middle of the trial and ended up taking care of not only him, but my cousins and gave him quality of life. So I always was inspired by that, knew I wanted to like pursue that path. So everything I did was kind of leading up to that. Like I went from Pittsburgh to then DC, I went for undergrad to criminal justice and then figured out where I wanted to live and went to law school there. And I was like, fuck, I want to live where it looks like every day is a beer commercial. That's California. So went out to Pepperdine, never left. So I've been in Southern California, live in Manhattan Beach now and started rather than taking that big law job they were going to pay me like 150 grand a year because i did well in law school i went and worked for 55 grand a year a third of what i killed and by year two or three was making more than all my friends but i was committed to this passion of trying cases for the injured folk networking hustling my ass off and then started my own firm after four years three years and off we go you've described law school as coming pretty easy for you, right? Almost to the extent that you're like, you're sitting in the back of the room playing online poker and then you're still making great grades. <laughs> was that always the case? Like, wh- where was the struggle? That's what I want to hear about. College was tough because we couldn't, my brother and I couldn't really want to afford it. My dad took out a lot of union loans to get us through there because it was expensive. We had some scholarships, but we were working two or three jobs all the way through college, eating ramen noodles and eggs going on those dollar McDonald's menus, buying like 10 cheeseburgers, keeping them in a little mini fridge, that kind of stuff, eating pizza out of trash. You know, I'm not too proud. I still kind of do that, right? If somebody throws something out a little too early. But 
coming out to law school, why, I mean, I didn't know you knew all this, but it was kind of easier for me. And this was the reason why I wasn't happy. The first year of law school, you have to sign a contract with most law schools say you don't work anywhere else. You have to concentrate on this first year. And I was like, it was the first time in my life where I didn't have like two or three jobs. I can concentrate on one thing. And I was like, this is fucking easy. Like I'm not playing sports. I'm just doing time management. I was in the best shape of my life because I had like time to work out and do things. I was like, this is pretty easy. So I did really well my first year. But I think the this, this struggle comes where the second struggle came was when I went out on my own. Like I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't come from a lot of money. I didn't take out any loans. It was, you know, really had to strive that business. If you're a personal injury. You sign up a case. You're not going to get paid for sometimes three, four years if you're, if you're going the distance on it. So there was times, you know, there was a lot of ebb and flow where we just take my brother and I took huge chances and like, fuck it, let's just rent this big office building, sublet it out and grow into it. That's just, we think we can make it work. What's the worst thing could happen? Like we can go work for another firm anytime we want. Another big struggle is about three or four years in after I had hit a few big verdicts, but they were on appeal. But we had all these cases come through the door because people wanted me to try their cases. We couldn't say no to them. But we were, my brother and I literally, I think for one or two years, we didn't take any money. Like we had no money coming in because we we're just waiting. It was on appeal, waiting to get paid. And we wanted to invest the money that came in into other things by to get employees and things. So that's where, and then after one case paid on appeal and the next one did, and then all the, then that crest of that wave hit and it's been fucking fantastic ever since. But man, you just got to believe it and, and go for it. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, as you described, you didn't really have anything to lose at that point. How, how were you essentially acquiring cases then versus now? Never done SEO, pay-per-click, any case ex- acquisition, anything like that. Back in the day, it was just literally ground and pound grassroots marketing where I was going to swap meets. My Spanish is pretty good. I'd just be helping people with general shit. I was going to chiropractor's office saying, I can refer you cases. Do you have anything? Physical therapists going to make friends with doctors at trauma centers and just seeing if you know they had any referral sources. I had paid someone like 12 bucks an hour back in the day just to get an Excel spreadsheet and start entering in the emails of every single person that I went to law school with. Because I got, my law school gave me the list. You can go on the State Bar website, find the emails. And I just started doing like email campaigns. I had to go to messaging boards. Like, hey, I'll pay you a referral fee. Say, open my own shop. And I'm still getting cases from people I went to law school with that I'm friends with still going to like messaging boards of other listservs and things, just answering people's questions. And every once in a while, they would send me something. It's like a 24-hour job, you know, and it was half my time as starting my firm and leading up to it was spent marketing. And by marketing, it was just on the streets, handing out business cards, giving people my cell phone numbers, texting them, giving people a call, letting them know, reminding them that I'm there. And I remember one of the first big cases I had early on, I settled for five million bucks. And the reason I got that case is because I helped out it was a wrongful death case. The person that had passed, I had helped out their uncle for free, just on like a property damage case. They had a big injury. I said, I'll take care of it for you. And then he called whenever this happened to his nephew. And yeah, I was there the next day. But I had myself putting that myself in that position by helping people out for free and doing the right thing. I preached to a lot of people starting their firm. Your time is free. You just got to use it wisely. So get out and do it. What was driving you during that time? Because I'm, I'm curious, like, what's the origin of the hustle? Because people work hard. I, I don't imagine there's going to be the majority of people listening are lazy by any means, but you're hitting the streets, you're doing the ground and pound right out of the gate. What's the origin of that? Why do you think you were the way you were? There's that one book that John Morgan wrote, You Can't Teach Hungry. And I remember reading it back in the day and Brian Panch actually gave me a copy and he said, you need to read this book. This is a long time ago. And I remember reading, he said, shit, this resonates with me because like you either have this insatiable 
appetite or you don't. And I think it's something that you grow, you grow up with a chip on your shoulder or you grow up that you have something to prove, right? And I came from a very working class family, you know, public high school, and I always felt like we could do better. I always wanted to start companies, do things with my family to work together. My dream is to have this massive compound where we're all together and hanging out all the time, whatever. Not the Michael Jackson compound, but it was always like, dude, like I could do better than this. I always wanted to take care of my family. That was always a big driving force for me, even to this day. Like I will not stop pushing forward until all of my family significantly taken care of because everybody either, we all work together at my law firm or work together at Justice HQ. And that's a big driving force for me. It's like until we can all have until everybody, not just me, but every single member of my family have independent financial success and that qualify different things for different people. Mine means if you can be so financially independent that you can have stress-free free time with your family as often as possible, then you've made it. It doesn't matter if that's a few million, a few hundred thousand, a few billion. If you can do that and do it well, you've won. It seems like the story of the Simon Law Group is really a story about family. And, and so I wanted to ask you about this. I'm not sure if this is still accurate, but if it is, this is amazing because I've, I've heard of different arrangements of, of staff at various offices. I, I once spoke to a, a firm owner where both of his ex-wives still worked at the practice. And from what I hear, your entire family works at the Simon Law Group, even both of your divorced parents. So I, I'm just curious how that dynamic is. It's awesome. I mean, so my twin brother and I started the firm, but it was actually my little brother who graduated from DC. He was undergrad there. He came out and helped me when I, I was first just a solo, hired him for like nine months. So like, dude, we're so busy. You got to go to law school. Told my twin brother, Brad, you need to quit your firm because you do all the background stuff. You know the law in motion. We need to do this. So we did it. And then after a few years, we're like, we need to start having people we trust within the firm. First of all, handling the money. So it was like my mom and dad are good at that stuff. My dad was still driving feeder trucks for UPS at the time. My youngest sister, she's 12 years younger than us, so she was still in high school. So after she graduated high school, we're like, we got her to go to, out to school to California, <laughs> got my mom to then come work at the firm. My dad had like three more years left to get to his like full retirement pension at UPS. So the day that he retired, like I flew out to Pittsburgh, we got in a U-Haul, packed up all his shit, and we just drove straight across country. And then he lived with us actually for six months, my wife and I, which was a very interesting story. We're you know, newlyweds, my dad moves in. It was like a sitcom because, you know, he's newly single. They had just divorced maybe a couple of years ago. We handled the divorce, everything amicable. But my dad is like out on match.com, these different dating apps. We live, you know, by the beach. He's going out on dates. He lives with us like in the third bedroom. It was just fucking hilarious. Very funny time in our life. But rewind a little before that, before he moved out, I got my brother who would to go to law school that is our little brother my little sister came out to california too we we're trying to get her in into the system as well she's a cpa now she's the ceo of justice hq fuck that was a journey but at one point it was my wife and i who had just got married were living with my little brother my little sister and my little sister's friend all in this because like i just started my firm we didn't have a lot of money yet so we're just like hustling our asses off and now it's my dad my dad's new wife works for us too they live down the street i see them like every day both my brothers, obviously, my, both my sisters run Justice HQ. One's a CEO, one's the community director. And then my brother-in-law, he runs the, the operations. He's CEO of Justice HQ. God, do I have any other family? Oh, yeah, my dad's new wife's daughter also works for the firm. I know I'm missing somebody, but whatever. It is what it is. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but when you think about all this, right? You think about the Simon Law Group, you've got the family together. Family's obviously very important to you. But then you look at the other things that you're involved with between Justice HQ, Law de Gras, and so on. You love creating communities. You love bringing people together. Have you, have you thought about kind of the parallels between all those? I mean, shit, I never thought of it like that. 
I try to make everybody around me very successful, like almost to a fault. Like sometimes my wife's like, why do you help all these people out? I was like, well, I just, they're friends of mine. Like I want their businesses to succeed. And sometimes I joke around, I was like, I just want other people to, you know, be able to afford the fucking vacations we take and go together. But I really like helping all of my circle of friends intertwine all my other circle of friends, professional, like all my best friends, we all work together at our firm. All this, all the lawyers we work with, we all live close to each other. We hang out constantly. We all have little kids. I mean, we're together all the time, but all the people my friend are my best friends. If you had asked me my best friend, there's probably like 40 I would list. Same thing with Lottie Gras, same thing with Justice HQ is I just like to help the best people come together and have the most fun. And we have this one, like I made up this one phrase called no crooks, no creeps, because I think if you get those people out of your life, people that are like sucks on your time, your drain, and just bad people to be around, you'll just be a happier person. So if you have communities around you that don't strive off of those things, then you'll be cool. And speaking of communities, so I know we mentioned Justice HQ. For people who are listening that may not be familiar with that, how, how would you describe what that is? So Justice HQ is a community. It's a membership-based, so you have to be attorneys that are approved to come in. So everybody's an attorney. Everybody's a consumer-based attorney in some form or fashion. And their membership comes with their office-based solutions. So all of our office spaces have 24-7 access to it. We have people help their media. Um, we have people start their firms through it. We have like business developmental stuff. There's discounts to vendors, a lot of how-to stuff. We have people, I try to give them a platform too. Through Just HQ, you can do your own podcast, your own speaking engagements to show that they're an expert in what they do. Because again, they've got either recruited or approved to get a membership into Justice HQ. So it has that expert network built into it. We have a case exchange where people are, my goal is with Justice HQ is to get the best cases to the best people in that specialty and then have a community around them to be able to mentor them. We have big lawyers like myself, Gary Dorda, Gosh Mompour, Brett Schreiber, that are very well-known lawyers that help mentor them professionally and also you know, socially as well, but with their cases. So we have people come in every couple of days, they roundtable their cases. And these are, that's their cases, but the whole community is helping them get better. So it's to have that support in just a fucking bigger scale. So now that we've be able to do that, like this is a scalable system. You just have to make sure that the right people, the right community is in there. Cause if you have one bad seed that just is a drain on everybody, it, it fucks it up. So we've been very blessed to get the right people in and right people involved. And it is, we can't expand fast enough, but you know, that's a tertiary problem at this point. Have you had to kick anybody out? Yes. <laughs> we got to keep people out. There's been people that many people have gotten rejected. Because you seem like a pretty easygoing, laid back guy. So that when it gets to the point of like, you got to go, what, what are they doing? Okay. So first of all, it's not my call. So we've developed a membership committee and it's other people that are members. A lot of people that are founding members. There is a screening process. First of all, they come through, they interview and people expect a certain quality of lawyer because if people are outsourcing their works, this expert network, you have to have a good quality type of lawyer. The people that aren't able to be involved anymore are folks that did things like trying to do unethical fee splits or that are trying to screw over other people, even within your own community, off of cases and things like this. And that's not something that we preach or condone. You know, we're in this ecosystem, right? And better be a low ecosystem where we're all doing these things together. And if somebody's not doing things that are that are only good for them and trying to stamp over other people in the community, that just doesn't work. That doesn't jive. That doesn't fly. That's not how I built my success. And most people probably like you have not built their success on stepping on or over people, especially whenever they're in the same community. It just doesn't work that way. So if, if that happens and there's complaints from other members, you're gone. I mean, that's just the way that it works. So like the quality of lawyers always been there, especially with people getting mentored around them. But it's always been 
people doing just fucked up shit on the side, man. Just can't be doing it. The human condition is, is so interesting to me because I, I find that usually what, what leads to those situations is typically greed to some extent. But ironically, the thing that typically leads to a lot of wealth is very much is abundance mindset and actually helping others succeed. And, and the ones that actually help, you know, the most people succeed tend to be the most financially successful. But it's true, dude, right? I mean, like the wealthiest people that I know are the people that are the most giving with, with their time or helping others. Because I, I do believe in karma. It's some form or fashion, like it, it all comes back. And like my dad taught me this as an early age. He's like, just be nice to everybody. There's no reason to be an asshole. Like I judge people now, if we're going out to dinner or lunch, how nice they are to the staff, right? If they say thank you or please, or, or just show a little human interest in people, that's how I judge it. That's how I judge folks. And if people think they're better than anybody, that's not somebody I want to be around. Like you, you should never, ever, I don't care your level of success, we're all human beings. We're all on this planet. Like we're sharing it together. Just, just be cool. And if you're cool and putting out good energy, everybody else will be too. So yeah, man, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Let's take it one level deeper. Cause I, I want to talk about like ego in the legal profession. And I'm, I'm still puzzled about this because obviously there's a lot of it, but at the same time, you would think that building a business and building a law firm is, is one of the most humbling experiences I think that anyone can ever experience, right? It's just a painful experience to go from nothing to something. And you would think that any ego that you have at the start would be beaten out you know, of you by the time you get to the end. But yet here we are. Okay. I think any successful lawyer that's running a law firm has to put their ego aside. If you cannot do that, you will not succeed. You will end up having to run on that treadmill to keep up with everything. Because if you have the ego, you want to do everything. You want to do it your way. And you are the top of the pyramid. If you build yourself on that, one, you're going to be really fucking tired. You might be successful. You might make a lot of money, but you're not going to have a quality of life. That's not going to be good. Two, how are you going to be able to scale that business? If it's just you, if you put yourself on the top of the pyramid, because of your ego, you had to be the best. You have to try every case. You have to have your name on everything. If you put yourself at the top of the pyramid, what's the value? The value is just you. Are you is that that's not a product somebody wants to buy or you want to be bought, right? So I preach to people when they start the law firms or they start their brands. And like I do this at my firm, I made a very concentrated mission to try cases in teams. I recruited lawyers with good with personalities that were good people first out of law school or young lawyers, bring them into the firm, try, have them try cases and develop a name for themselves. Because if they're able to also try cases and do a good job, then I can bring in other cases that they can try and I don't have to be the, that person that has to do everything, right? But to do that, you have to put your ego aside. You have to put yourself second. But I think that's how you have the biggest quality of life because if you insulate yourself by putting your ego aside, then you have more free time to hang out with your family, whatever you want to do. Are there certain ways that you're, you're vetting, whether it's younger lawyers, even other lawyers that you bring on, whether certain questions you ask them or even certain uh, experiences you have that help you determine that somebody is a good fit versus not? There's no certain like key questions. It's just like, you know, talk to me about yourself or like, you know, what drives you. I can usually tell a little bit off of if I make an attorney an offer and it's one's based off of more hustle, one's based off of more certainty and salary, what kind of personality you may have. But I do a lot of background checking. Like people... I mean, I get blown up constantly because people call me like the lawyer whisperer because I got my ear to the ground. Like I know everything about everybody. And I, I think I do a pretty good job about just like finding out who people really are. I ask around about other people. I make sure I'm certain about somebody before they fit in. And when we hire lawyers at our firm, it, I feel like we can mold the quality of lawyer that they are, what quality of trial lawyer, but they have to be a good person first. So I, we, even with our law clerks, we do a lot of fucking background checks, social media checks. You know, if you're Law clerks that try to work your attorneys and all their social media is them like at, at the nightclub in Vegas constantly. Like that's not 
I don't know, man, not what it is, right? Most of our trial lawyers end up being very same like me, very humble beginnings. I like those people that come from humble beginnings that are very hungry, that not only want to succeed, but kind of need to succeed for their family, because I see you know commonalities in that. Then I could teach them not only the this is how you be a lawyer, but then this is how you also generate business to take care of you as well. Like if you ever want to start your own firm, you have to be able to to bring in business. And I teach that at our firm in other places as well. So this is interesting. I got in a, in a bit of trouble at our last conference when I said this. It was like the opening keynote, and they said I was the fun police, where I basically said that, you know, if you ever caught me in a nightclub, you know, and I'm 40 years old, send help, right? Somewhere along the line, I've messed my life up or I made a series of poor decisions, and a lot of people didn't like that for whatever reason. But you do have a good time. I mean, I, I was watching what you guys are doing at Mardi Gras, and you're having fun. How do you differentiate that kind of fun from the person getting drunk at 2 o'clock in the morning at the nightclubs? A lot of guys there that late they're, tra- they're chasing drugs or women or both. Nothing good's going to come out of that, right? I would never like go to a situation like that without my wife. First of all, and I, I hate nightclubs to begin with. Like a lot of girls, we start stuff early. You know, I was still in bed by 9, 30, 10 every night. I'm an early guy, so there's that because I got to get up before the day starts and things like this. But I think you can have a good time, have it moderation. But if you have the right people around you that are pulling you in the right direction and not looking for trouble, right? I, the people that I try to be around the most are people that have very successful marriages and family life. One of my mentors is Gary Doric. He's got you know five kids. Well, he got remarried with his wife. She has two, he has three, but they've been married for a very long time. We take trips together, we do stuff together, but they put their family first all the time. And I like to be around that. Like I like to see it, be inspired by it, and see how can you have this many children and, and still be able to succeed, have a quality of life. I know you just did the show with Nick Rowley. He's got 11 kids, right? And he's been divorced. He has his new wife, Courtney, who we're, we're all good friends. She's the fucking best. And how he has that balance. I like, we challenge each other all the time. You know, he's picking a jury out in Washington right now on a, on a, on a big case with Rick Friedman. And it's like, how do you find that balance? Like, he's traveling a lot. Does he have to homeschool his kids? You know, how, how does that look to still be able to, to hang out with him and try all those cases? And we're constantly talking about these types of things to make it easier and better and spend more time together. But yeah, you got again, you got to put yourself in that community, that right group of folks. Sometimes it starts as just like a text chain of people. You know, when you do the masterminds, it's the same thing, right? Is you have to have the right people in these masterminds to push people to evolve. So when you're doing these, you have the right people in the room, they get pushed in direction, inspired differently than they otherwise would have. And I've been in different mastermind blocks and some like there's one where I was the only lawyer and there's a lot of entertainment folks and like hedge fund people and they just think differently. And it is very interesting to hear like their thought process. So sometimes you, your community can be a little different than the one legal one you're stuck into um, because you just learn new shit, right? And that's why I think what you're doing special because you can have people in different industries. Like I see who's speaking this year at Game Changers. Like they're not all legal centric, right? There's people that are talking to you how they made success different ways through different vehicles. But there's a lot of similarity to it, but you still have a lot to learn. Well, thank you. And, and so I know you've been throwing around basically two phrases. One is balance, which I mean, I, I don't have an answer to candidly. And I, I speak to a lot of people and, and a lot of successful people that I know, they don't have an answer. But I think the other one that you said may be more important, which is quality of life. Because maybe if you can't get the balance, the quality of life perhaps is more important. Because I mean, the idea is that if you're going to be a high achieving human being in, in any avenue of your life, right, that implies some degree of imbalance. But the quality of life, like, how do you describe that? What does that mean to you? Quality of life is doing what makes you happiest most of the time. That's quality of life. For me, I love working from home. I love trying cases too, but most of the time I'd rather be home. So there's a way for you to be able to to do a lot of all of that, right? 
And that's why when we started Just HQ, it was like, I don't want lawyers to have to think they have to be in the office all the time to be successful. Our, we have 65 to 70 employees at the Simon Law Group. We're all virtual. We have been for a very long time. All of our support staff, they get to you know be at home. They come into our office spaces when they need to to collaborate, hang out, or if they need to do like take meetings that they need to do in person. But I think that gives people a chance to be present in their children's lives or their spouse's lives. I do think from a societal thing, like we've had a breakdown of people just being invested in their family and children. If we're able to solve that in some small way, I think we've made the world kind of a better place. So for me, like quality of life has always been defined for me as like financial freedom, stress-free with your family, not having to worry about other shit. Now, look, I'm always going to pick up the phone. I have my phone on me at all times. I'm have Apple Watch. If somebody's texting me about a new case or something, I got to pick up. Look, man, I got to do that. My wife's an entrepreneur too. She, you know, owns a couple of companies and brands and she's constantly hustling as well. And, you know, we understand that. So I'm very blessed to have a spouse and she's the best. And we both understand it when we're stressed and we got to deal with that shit. But sometimes, you know, as a business owner, you got to suck it up and do it. There's no one else that's going to do it but you. So you mentioned your wife. I've heard you describe her as your your biggest inspiration. And I know all the women listening to the podcast are going, oh, right. And I say the same thing about my wife. And I'm not I'm not trying to get that's not fan service or anything like that. That's a really important decision, isn't it? Like the, your choice of spouse, like may, maybe the most important decision you will ever make. How is that dynamic between the two of you? I mean, it's the best. So her name's Christine Bullock. We met at a sports bar that I used to go to every single day, trying to hustle business and have whiskey with my friends in West LA. And she walked in and I was like, that's the girl I'm probably going to marry. Look at that. You know, she's amazing. And then we talked all night and she ended up being from Pittsburgh too. We never met each other. Like she's very much entrepreneur driven. At that time when I met her, I was still working for another firm. I think it was a second year lawyer or so. And, you know, she would see me be like, I'd be trying their cases. I'd be bringing in most of their business. And she was like, why don't you just start your own firm? Like, why do you think that you need to be there all the time? I was like, yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, she kind of inspired me. Like, just, let's just fucking do it. She's like, I'm comfortable living with your family. Like, and every day we push each other. It's, you know, I'm just inspired because she's up late working sometimes. I would be probably a lot lazier if she wasn't as driven. And hopefully she says the same thing. My wife, Jessica, and I, we kind of have like a Southpaw story. If you ever see like that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, where like you know, <laughs> when, when we met, like I was broke as hell. So she was there all the way up to build the business. And it, a lot of it actually, if not most of it, is really a testament to her, not me. There are times, even with our first daughter when she was born, she's running payroll, like right in the hospital bed, you know, our daughter being born a few hours prior, that sort of thing. I think the best part about that is that you just, you never really have to explain anything. It's just understood, right? There is a shared vision, that that sort of thing. I saw you your wife at Mardi Gras with the baby pouch there, like out there with Snoop Dogg. I mean, that's amazing. Does she support everything you're doing? You know, she dishes it back. Like, why don't you do this? Or why would you do it that way? You know, like she, she helps inspire a lot of like the media stuff that I do because she like was one of those social media influencers a, a long time ago. Like she was one of the first ones that started doing that. She has her own skincare and beauty line. And you know, she started off doing fitness models, started her own companies, did her own workout DVDs, all this, that did all just through social channels, right? So she has a lot of knowledge and little knowledge in that space, what works, what doesn't work, how she can you know, sell consumer products through it, and then helps me with the type of stuff that I do. Like, she'll be the one to show me how to do like simple reels and things like this, or this is what's trending and do it like this, right? And then how to do photo shoots and how to use different content to save it. So yeah, man, I mean, that's her thing, man. She's really good at it. I don't know, we mentioned this a little earlier, but uh, let's, let's talk about Mardi Gras. So this this happened again recently. This seems to be growing year over year over year. Like, this is probably unlike any other conference in the legal industry. What was kind of the inspiration for it and how would you describe it to people who, who haven't been? So we originally had it around Mardi Gras, the first year that we had it. And we just wanted to, again, do something that we thought would 
be more fun in the industry. And you've seen it, right? You've seen these legal conferences of the same shit. It's stale. You're in a, a ballroom and they break it up and you have people talking about stuff. And then you have the row of vendors and then they have dinner parties. And that's it. Like, and it's fine, right? But you keep hearing the same speakers. There's this younger generation of folks that have a lot of good stuff to say. Why don't you let them speak? Let them present. Do something a little more fun or innovative. So my media director at the time, Teresa Deep, who was also co-founder of Justice HQ, her eye and this guy, Pratik Shaw, who's now Brian Panish's office, but he was on his own at the time. We were like, what if we started a fun legal conference? And that's it. Like, we're only here to, like, have young presenters come in to have a new thing to talk about business developmental stuff, to talk about how you make money as a lawyer, but then also educate on chronic pain and spine. So that was we'd have doctors come in. So on our board are doctors and lawyers. And the whole idea and premise was like, let's just fucking have fun. So we had concerts at night. The first year we had, one of the most recent year we had Snoop Dogg and Rev Run. The year before we had Nelly and Flo Rider. And Flo Rider this day, he put on the fucking best show. It was amazing. But first year we did it, it was just like, let's just fucking figure that. I wanted to hear stuff that I liked as a kid. So it was like Young MC, Color Me Bad, Tone Loke. God, there were like four other acts, but they came and did like three or four of their best hits. Again, if you get the right people in the room, and same thing with them, um, you, you might have to do it in your conference too, but we have... There's some people that just aren't allowed to go to the conference because they either cause trouble or they do very bad things to women and they have a bad reputation is we wanted to create a safe environment for folks that are there. So people just have fun and not worry about the bullshit, you know, not worry about some of these things that happen in in Vegas where they have these conferences and there's just like, you know, bad shit that happens. We wanted people and young females and young lawyers to feel safe at these places and just have fun. And it's worked. So now we've got a one up next year. We'll see what happens. Hopefully it'll still be hip hop centric. But we are planning on doing a, a lawyer's got talent type thing, which is going to be hilarious. So people are going to pre-submit their things. We'll announce that soon. <laughs> They'll get to perform on stage and maybe get to open for one big headliner. We'll see. Okay. Well, Rob, I, I have to, we interrupt this podcast for an ad from our sponsor, Preparation H. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Back to the podcast. So I told you that we, we don't run ads on the podcast it is for this exact reason. So you can say whatever you want. You can, you can bring on whoever we want. You can talk about whatever we want. I'm curious, as we've been talking about a lot of this stuff, what are the types of habits that keep you on track and engaged and motivated? Like, do you have a certain routine? Are there certain things that you do that just, because it seems like retirement is not in the vocabulary. That's something you never want to do. So how do you stay engaged every single day? I don't think I'll ever retire in some form or fashion. Because, I mean, my, my day is like an amoeba. Like, sometimes I'm, if I'm in trial, I actually can have a routine because they're set start and finish to each day. It's the only time I can actually do things. Every day, I usually, you know, I'll, between 5 and 5.30, I get some stuff done because my kids will usually get up quickly thereafter. I have a 5 and a 2-year-old, one do every day. I usually, they're up by 6, 6.30, make them breakfast. They usually eat. Like, I cook, they eat breakfast by seven, and then we start getting ready for school. I mean, this is my routine, right? My wife makes the lunches. I go up and get the one five-year-old dressed for school, get her off to school, and then I'll get a workout in. That's the only time, like, I shut off the phone for, like, 30 to 40 minutes. And then I grind. I mean, that's fucking it. I don't know what other, what other way to say it. You know, get the kids to bed by 7. They're asleep by 7.30. Um, I usually have a fucking coconut popsicle and watch a movie or show with my wife and then do emails for 30 minutes in a bed by 9, 9.30. That's it, man. I don't know what to fucking tell you. <laughs> when you got kids... You don't have, I mean, it's hard to get that fixed schedule. I'll tell you, it requires a level of discipline that I think people without kids don't have to have. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, you know, what's the difference between having kids and not having kids? And I explained, I mean, it's really quite simple. Once you have kids, you no longer get to decide what time you go to bed and what time you wake up. 
right? Like at that <laughs> point, it's basically, because you got like two plus whatever, how many kids you have, like dependents, right? And these human beings, you're responsible for keeping them alive, right? So you have to wake them up and you have to, you know, feed them and then you have to like bathe them, put them to bed. Well, Mike, don't you have two, you have two young girls, right? What are their ages? Three-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah. So your three-year-old is going to start in her own bed start coming up in the middle of the night and make up some excuses why you need to come in the room. And that's why I have that book next to my bed called Go the Fuck to Sleep. If you don't have it, it's hilarious. And sometimes I read it and believe it. I got long. two copies. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, dude. But I mean, yeah, your mornings and nights aren't your own. So whatever. So this is something that I've struggled with. I would love a good answer from you on this. You know, both you and I, we, we grew up, we didn't have much, right? We grew up poor and, you know, it's, it's hard to grow up entitled when you're poor. But how do you extend that to your kids, right? Because I imagine your kids growing up uh, have a very different lifestyle than you did growing up. Yep. And, you know, that's one of my big, my wife and I talk about all the time, our biggest fears is, you know, are they going to grow up with this grit and tenacity and want to succeed if they have everything for them? Like my wife starts, she has what's called a star chart and they have to earn their stars. And if they earn everything, they'll get like a toy or they can have a, a friend come over for a play date just to make them earn these types of things. And I re- we were talking like when they get older, they're going to have to earn to have like cell phone use. Like I'll say like you can work here. Maybe I'll give you an extra bonus like so you can afford this lifestyle or whatever. But you have to work. You have to put in the sweat. And my wife worked at Dunkin' Donuts. Like I worked at a concession stand. I mowed lawns. Like I want them to fucking earn it. Go work at like Taco Bell, you know, see what it's like and just and put in the sweat equity into it. Yeah, but they are going to get fucking wonderful things. Like we spent six weeks in Europe, but they're also going to have to understand and, you know, other people, other cultures and how people don't have everything. And I think the more they see that, the more they'll they'll respect it. I think you have to be a good hands-on parent in order for that to happen. I don't think... The same answer is not true for everybody, but I think if you're in your children's lives, it'll be good. Yeah. Look, I got an example of this. Just this week, our daughter, our, our oldest, Mila, she started at her, her new preschool. It's all day because before she was doing half days. So this is brand new school, brand new shit. teachers. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Right. It's time to go full days. Right. It's time to go eight to six. Start working serious weeks. But new teachers, new kids, new class, everything. First day uh, she comes back. She says she never wants to return there ever again. And I'm like, why? What happened? She doesn't like the food. She doesn't know anybody. She took a nap, but didn't sleep. Right. She, you know, X, Y, Z, all these different things. And then on top of it all, she wanted to go out there. They were, they were playing outside with these kids and they were playing basketball and she went up to the kids and didn't share with her. And one of the boys hit her. So I'm hearing all this and, and it's like, how do you like, what advice do you give? I probably gave the wrong advice, but I, I listened to all this. And the only thing I could say is like, look, everybody's got a different set of parents. And then just because they're the way that they are, doesn't mean that you can't be kind and so on. So the next time something like that happens and you walk up, you want to play basketball or whatever it is. And um, first off, ask politely, be kind. And if they're still not wearing the share, don't go rat to the teacher, go take what's yours, right? And she listened to this and I told my wife, she's like, that's terrible advice. You shouldn't have told her that. But however, fast forward one day later, right? This is yesterday. And we pick her up again from school and I'm like, how'd it go? She's like, amazing. I played basketball all day. Like, I, cause you want, cause you have two young girls, right? I want them to be able to stand on their own. We want them to be kind, generous, but man, kids are tough. Your kids will be great if you just pay attention to it. But I do the same thing when I drop off my daughter every day. And I tell her, I said, you listen to the teachers, you try as hard as you can, and you be the leader. So you dictate the games in the playground and you're the leader. Got it? Good. So, yeah, same. It's interesting because here's the other thing about kids is that I find that kids do not listen to what we have to say. And yet 
they learn through modeling what we do. You could say one thing, but like what they'll really do and the behaviors will start to repeat is basically what you're doing, right? If you're sitting there and you're on your phone the whole time, before you know it, your kid, they want their own like kind of plastic phone to be on all the time, right? You know, if you're working on a laptop, they want their own little laptop. And two nights ago, we ran down the list of questions of like, well, how was school? What'd you eat? What'd you do? And then last night, Neil flips it on us and she's like, how was work? What'd you eat? What'd you do? And this is a three-year-old, right? <laughs> Which is awesome, right? So she like flips the script, but it's, it's so true. And, it, and if you kind of fast forward that to the business world, it's tough because it's like at that point, you're now you're dealing with adults, right? So they're no longer children, but it's tough to sometimes blame them because everybody has a very different upbringing and yet we're still now responsible in our in present day. I mean, you have to know your audience, right? I mean, and I tell this like, cause I teach a lot of trial skit tactics, right? It's like your audience is 12 people in the box. That's who you better know everything about them, know what they're selling to them. Don't be afraid to call yourself a salesman. You better know what they like, what they don't like, how they like messaging. Same thing. Like, I tell people, if you try like changing a five-year-old's mind about something, right? You have to get on their level. You have to understand what, what they like and how they communicate. And the same thing for adults is I'll go into, you know, meetings and know so much about them that I can change the messaging based off who I'm talking to. And you know this, right? I mean, it's know your audience and I big believer in that, man. So yeah, do your, do your homework and just everybody has a different perspective. Just see their perspective. You don't have to agree with it. You just have to understand it enough to communicate. Yeah, and, th- and I think that's really what it is. I think being able to put yourself in someone's shoes, see where they're coming from. I actually don't don't think that most people are bad people. And, and I think if you got enough people in a room together, even if they're on like opposing political aisles, like they probably agree about more things than they disagree. I agree 100% on that, 100%. One of the things that I've, I've asked just every, I don't know, 50 podcasts is there's a lot of people who give advice and get advice. What's been the best advice you've received and what's been the worst advice? Could be about anything. I think the best advice my parents always told me, it's like, don't be afraid to fail. Like what's the worst that can happen? Like who gives a shit? We've been happy with nothing. Like I'll find joy in anything. So who like, don't be afraid to fail. I think you have to take risks, take calculated risks and do your research. But I mean, it's probably the best piece of advice. Gee, what's the worst piece of advice? I'm very like I roundtable everything with like business, my brother, family with my wife before we come to a big decision or anything. So those those bad advice kind of weeds itself out. I oh actually bad advice is people, you know, I've had other lawyers tell me that you can't share, you know, how you get business with the people in your firm. That like you have to hold close to the vest like your secret sauce for everything and don't share it. That's actually the worst advice because I don't believe it. like I share to a fault how we are successful. I'm in the final editing process on, on a book, how to try spine cases and handle them because I just give all my information. Same thing I share with all my lawyers, how to generate business, how to be successful for themselves because they're getting a percentage on that stuff as well. You would you kill. And people say, aren't you afraid that they'll leave? And I said, would you rather invest in somebody and they leave or you don't and they stay? That's just the way that I feel. And if somebody goes off and I've had several lawyers leave and be very successful starting their own firms who work together, we're still friends. And I encourage that. It's like, I want you to have that that path as well, just like I did, right? So I don't get that mentality. All right, Rob, so as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? My passion right now is changing the legal industry is to break it up. I I do think that the world is going to be solos and small firms and get away from the big law stuff. I see all these other things happening with consolidations of, of different things, but I think you can have this consolidation where everybody be their own separate thing. But I think that the old way of doing law is done. I think you can massively cut your, your overhead by 
these solutions that we've now mastered, that we teach, that we give for very low membership costs for people to do it. I think that's how it's going to change. And I think if the societal changes that way, that people coming in a law school can actually pursue their passions because it's less expensive for them to do it. They can actually go in to do, you know, work for the homeless or they can go do those legal clinics that they couldn't otherwise do. They don't have to be beholden to these big firms that have to pay them a lot of money because they can actually, with a low overhead, pursue a passion and make money off of it if they're taught how to do it and have the resources around them to do it. I think it's going to change. You know, I think a lot of people look down, all the bigger law schools look down on trial lawyers or personal injury. Now they're starting to embrace it. Like, oh, my God, there's these people are actually changing things. A lot of civil rights lawyers are changing things. And if you ingrain that in people in law schools, like you don't have to go fucking take these big paychecks. You can actually make money pursuing this. Man, it'll be a different world. Insurance companies might not like it, but fuck them. <laughs> so we could mic drop it there. I got one more thing to ask. I think it was like an Instagram story you, you posted. This is during Lottie Gras. And I think you were out golfing with your dad. You got a call. You settled a multi-million dollar case. And then you resumed golfing. So just that moment, just knowing kind of your upbringing, like just your, your dad, everything like that. What was that like? Is your dad proud of you? Oh, my dad's super proud of me. Like... I remember the one time I had like my first big verdict and my dad, assuming he was still back in Pittsburgh, and he called me. He's like, remember this feeling because you're going to have it over and over again more often. I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful. Like coming from him, you know, it was, it was really cool. When we started our firms, we were high-fiving if we settled a case for like 50 grand, right? And now we're talking about should I accept this or walk away and try the case? I think you strategically put yourself in those situations, right? Like it's hard for me to golf because I'm fucking – yeah, I could play. It's fun, whatever, like – we actually were 13 under that round. We came in second, but whatever. I'm on my phone. Like, I'm trying to get shit done, right? Like, we're in the middle of planning this event. I got stuff going on later that night. I was trying to resolve this case because of the next trial that I had coming up. But he's, my dad does all of the um, the costs at the firm. Like, he takes care of, like, pays all the bills and makes sure all the accounting is, is up to speed. So he gets really excited for cases when they settle. And he knows exactly how much, like, it costs that are out there, too. So then he does the math. And that's when he gets excited. <laughs> But it was a cool moment, man. I mean, but it happens all the time more often than, than people think is things are now getting resolved. Like I have two calls with defense lawyers on cases that I think will resolve the trials coming up this afternoon. And I'll probably be out having a drink with my wife when that conversation happens. Or yesterday I was out literally playing in my daughter's playhouse yesterday, taking a call with the defense lawyer. So it was, you know, present on the phone doing things and then still there with my daughter. And the, the attorney said, is that your daughter in the background? And then we have a nice conversation. But I think that's the way that the world should be. And I think people should be less turned off or like, I can't take this call with my kids or at my home. It's unprofessional. No, no, fuck that. People are real. Everybody's real. I'm going to give a huge thank you to Rob Simon for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Rob said that you can only succeed when you put your ego aside. The second we think we know it all is the moment we stop growing. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Rob Simon, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Hold up. 